Well, today's Easter, and it's a big day for Christians, a big day for celebrating from people who come from or are involved in countries with a Christian heritage. What in the world is Easter all about? What's the deal with it? Is it just the end of winter? I'm happy about that. Is it just about chocolate? I'm happy about that too. Is it about holidays? Those are all good things, but none of them really get to the heart of what Easter is all about. So Easter is a celebration of new life. It's a celebration of wholeness. It's celebrating that good has actually broken in and crashed into our world. And who doesn't want to experience wholeness? No one has ever said, nah, I'm good at being incomplete, thanks, or I'm good being 99% good. We all want more to experience more wholeness. We all want more good in our world. At the very least, we're really yearning for something new now because our lives are really boring. What are we doing? We're just sitting around all day, just kind of by ourselves and during lockdown. Now, regardless of where you are with Jesus or Christianity or the church, everyone in this room, everyone watching online, everyone, we all want goodness, we all want wholeness, we all want newness. Probably very few of us would say 100% of our lives completely matches up in that way. So we're all in the same boat, regardless of where you are with Jesus right now. So today we're going to learn what it means to not be whole, because we'll first look at the issue, then we'll look at what it means to be made whole, and then we'll look um, uh, at what wholeness looks like. The big headline is Jesus is the one who brings the wholeness that we need. So let's jump into the Bible here that we just read about. First, some bad news. It doesn't start off with great news. Verse 21 uh, says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's not a good start. Alienated, enemies, evil behavior, it's all bad stuff. A good overall description of our state, according to that verse, is like estranged. Estranged is what you once had a, a close connection with someone, and now it's just kind of it's strained. It's not really working out. It's not a good relationship. Our natural disposition, our default mode, is being estranged with God. And estrangement is like a wedge. A wedge is kind of like it starts small but grows bigger. It's like a wedge driven between two people. It separates. It weasels its way in. It continues to drive apart. We are born with a wedge between us and God. That's how we're born. But what this verse points to are two areas also, not only born this way, but also two areas where we kind of bring that estrangement ourselves. In our minds and our behavior, the wedge is there because of what we think and because of what we say and what we do. In our minds and in our behavior, we are the ones actually driving that wedge deeper between us and God. Now, maybe that sounds a bit harsh and not the best way to start like what should just be like a happy morning all over the place. But let's think about this. God is involved in our whole life, our whole life, not just in like the hour that we have here or whatever. God is involved with our whole life, not just the good parts, not just the needy parts, but all of them, our whole life. He's always caring, always attentive, always loving, and always inviting us to a bigger life with him. So that means everything we do is connected to our relationship with God. If God is involving himself with our whole life, whether we like it or not, everything we do is therefore connected with God. Even everything we think is connected to our relationship with God. Now, you may not feel that to be true, but regardless of what you feel, this is what, how the Bible kind of talks about it. That's kind of what truth is. It's how the Bible describes reality. And even if you don't believe in God, you still have a life with him. Because God's still there. There's still some level of connection there. He created you, regardless of what you think about him. It may not be a great life that you have with him, but it's still there. Because he's always there. Now that means, all that we think and do, not only has an internal component of how it affects us, 
Uh, it has a horizontal component of how it affects other people in our lives, but also there's this vertical component of what it does and how it affects God, our, our Father. Everything we do has a vertical component. The bad, harbor, the bad thoughts that we harbor against others, there's a vertical component. That's just, not just internal or horizontal, though it is both of those things. It's also vertical. The sharp word we had with someone, and we knew we shouldn't have had that sharp word with them, that not only affects us, that not only affects the other person, it does affect our relationship with God. It affects our vertical relationship. Now, maybe um, another way to think about it. Let's say you have a really good friend, and that friend is with you when you say a cruel thing to a colleague. So you're there with a work colleague, you say something you probably shouldn't have had, and that good friend, because it's a good, they're a good friend, they say, hey, that was really weird. Why, were you, why didn't you say that to that person? It's kind of cruel. It's kind of mean. Then your response to that friend is to maybe say, well, well, you don't know what they did to me, and so this is like how I'm like interacting with them. And you, know, you, you try and present your point of like, this is why it was okay for me to be cruel to my friend. All right, let's say it happens again. You say a cruel thing, now to a different colleague, and that good friend is still there. That good friend would be like, you just said something mean to that person, now you're saying something really mean to them, like, what's the deal? And now you're, you're out of the arguments, you've already used your arguments up, so now you've, what, you maybe just the easiest thing would just be to blank your friend, and maybe that good friend becomes a little less of a good friend, because you don't want to hang around someone who's going to call you to live in a way that you probably ought to, if you don't want to move. So instead of arguing now, you blank them, and that goes on and on and on until a wedge it's driven between you and that formerly good friend. It changes relationships. You see, if God is a person and not just a thing, if he's actually a person, not a thing, if he's with us always and we argue, 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 ignore, 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 stay in our stubborn ways, of course that's going to affect our relationship with him. Of course it is. It would be naive to think that it doesn't. Now, none of us would claim to be perfect. We mess up in what we think we mess up in what we say, we mess up in what we do, or things that we should say but don't, things that we should do but don't, all those kind of things. Few of us would say that we don't have any problems in those areas. And if you did, I'd have a real question of your own kind of self-awareness. How do we make things right with our living God who is with us in everything that we jack up? He knows all the things that we jack up more than we know. And he's with us. And at the same time, what he's doing is inviting us to something more. How do we make things right? Shall we kind of keep on stumbling our own path to do things our own way as an act of, as, as if God's not there? I mean, that's an attractive option. If God's not there, we can just kind of do whatever we want. That would be, that's actually a very easy way to live. You can, you can easily live that way. I'd be free to act however I wanted. But in that freedom, really what I get in that freedom is just freedom to mess stuff up. I, I can mess stuff up in any kind of number of ways, but I don't really have a whole lot of freedom to make things right if I'm not asking God to work through me. I may not be a complete, utter waste of space with my life, but I am not a better person without God. And all that I do when I try and convince myself that God isn't there, that drives a wedge between me and my only hope in experiencing life in this world. So I have that problem. My thoughts, my words, my actions, they aren't as they should be by myself. I actually have a much bigger problem than that. That wedge that needs to be removed, I can't remove it. It is too big, it is too heavy, it is too burdensome. I don't have the power in myself to remove that wedge myself. The only kind of hope that I have to experience life in this world, there, there is a boundary there that I, it's, just, it's just too heavy, it's too big, it's oppressive. So I, we, all of us, we have the problem of not being who we should be because we are estranged from God because we don't have that really good restored relationship. And we don't have the power 
to make that relationship with God right in ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. We've estranged ourselves and we can't get back. And if the letter ended we should all just go home, get drunk, and pretend like tomorrow doesn't matter. At the very least, you shouldn't have got up this morning. You should have at least slept in. Especially if you're in America, waking up at five in the morning or something crazy like that. But it doesn't end there, thankfully. Verse 22, let me just read the first section of the next verse. But now he who's God the Father has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. So he's reconciled us. So we're enemies. Like, that's the bad news. But now what happens next? But now who has done the reconciling? God has reconciled us. Reconciliation is to be unified, is to be made whole. It's that, that wholeness thing that we talked about, to be restored. It's like a vintage car. Like there was an original glory, and over time that glory was lost until it was lovingly restored to its intended glory. That car didn't do anything to glorify itself. We had to act on that car to make that thing look good. Jesus has removed the wedge between us and God and restored that relationship. And in doing so, we get to be restored because of what Jesus has done. You know, when you have an argument with a friend or your partner, you just don't feel right inside, you feel conflicted. It's like, ah, it doesn't sit right. Maybe I have trouble sleeping. You just feel incomplete. That's a feeling of incompleteness. That's not wholeness. Now through Jesus, we actually get to be whole. The most important relationship we have. And the one relationship that if that is right, that's the only hope we can really get all these other relationships right. And Paul tells us how this happens here in Colossians. He says, through Christ's physical body, through death. Christ's death was a real event. It's actually very well historically documented. A momentous event. And like any momentous event, it actually has effects. The ending of World War II wasn't just a good idea to think about. Prisoners were actually set free. People stopped shooting at each other with guns. That's a really good thing that happened. It wasn't just like, oh, isn't it nice, the idea of a, of a world war ending. The same kind of thing with Jesus' death. It wasn't just a, it's not just a good idea to think about. It's a thing that actually did something. It set us free under our own oppressive regime. What happened in Christ's physical body on the cross was that he took all the things that we think, all the things that we say, all the things that have driven that wedge between us and between God, He removed it from us, and he put it on himself. All that we did to ignore God, blank him, argue with him, pretend he's not there, live the way that we want to live because we want to do the things that we want to do, he graciously took that from us, took that off of us, that oppressive, impossible burden, took that off of our backs, and he put it on his own. And what Paul says happens next is death. Death happens next. Jesus didn't keep going, living his life with our burdens on him. He died so that he could put those burdens to death. Those burdens that we have, that we feel, if we give them to Jesus, if if Jesus has taken them from us, they've been put to death. Only Jesus rose again. The the burdens, the sins, everything, all the brokenness, those stayed in the ground, those stayed dead. One of the reasons that Jesus had to die was to put to death that wedge of estrangement between us and God. Because we didn't have the power. Only God can do that. So the one who was wronged by us, he takes that wrong on himself and puts it to death by dying himself. I mean, there's no way to describe anything more loving, more selfless, more perfect, more godlike than what Jesus has done here. Like this verse here. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. 
this death was a monumental event. It did something. It changed and continues to change all those who follow Jesus. Maybe um, another way to think about it, I'm going to share a nice uh, uncomfortable story. It's always good. Have the guy up front squirm a little bit. Um, This happened a few times to me. Uh, You're playing with a band, which is great. You have multiple people who are different people playing all together. feels like a harmonious. It's great. Um, and uh, I was playing with a band in front of lots of people, which is even better. A lot of people are there. They're with you. You feel like you're all like all together on the same page. The people, they aren't playing instruments, but they're in it and you're in it. It just feels like one. It feels whole. It feels like a one kind of thing. Um, well, in this case, the rest of the band started the song. It's going well. The crowd's feeling it. Um, everyone's in it on together. Uh, we're, all, we're all in it together. And then it comes time for me to play a big ringing electric guitar chord, and oh no, I left the capo on the wrong fret. If you don't know what a capo is, it basically changes the, uh, the key on your guitar. Um, and I left the capo on the wrong fret, so I am just like, yes, feeling it, and I play it, and it's like this nasty, gross-sounding uh, chord that is completely disharmonious with the entire band, and everybody, especially my fellow bandmates, immediately look at me. Like, what was that? That was the worst thing I've ever heard. What are you doing with your life? And if you're on stage, you can't hide because you're right there. And literal lights on you. It's just a horrible thing. What was amazing before, that harmonious kind of sound, now it's just noise. It's just like cacophony. It's just like, what, this, is not, this, is not, this is not a good thing. And I'm in the wrong key. <laughs> Everyone looks at me. The shame. It was shameful. I can still remember it. I know exactly the venue in Orlando, too. Oh, it was horrible. Anyway, when, <laughs> I'm going to crawl out of that shame hole a second here. Uh, when we're playing in different keys together, that kind of disharmonious sound, uh, it can be painfully shameful. That's horrible. No, that's not attractive to anybody. But when everyone is on the same page, in the same key, playing together, that's harmonious. And that's a really good thing. There's a reason why it works. Before Christ's restoration, we were all members of a symphony, picking up whatever kind of instrument we could, playing whatever kind of music we wanted in whatever kind of key. Multiply that by 60, 100 people, that's a horrible sound. That's a horrible sound. That's worse than the sound of a symphony tuning up. Whatever piece of music that we're thinking we should make, nobody wants to listen to that. But after Christ's restoration, we get something else. The sound of a symphony playing together, unified, whole, all being directed and moving together restored as it should be. All because this is true in this verse. Now he has reconciled you by by Christ's physical body through death. Because that verse is true, that's what we have hope in. And if you notice, and these two verses that we looked at, verse 21 22, what do we do in all of this? What's our job here? We get to be enemies. We get to have the evil behavior. We get to, you know, um, have, uh, be enemies in our minds. What else do we do? God has done it all. We're completely passive here. God's done it all. Faith itself isn't passive. It's a very active thing. We'll get to the active bit in a second here. But the act of being restored is passive. It's God's act upon us. When you give a gift to someone, to the other person, what's their job? Their job is just to hold their hands out and accept the gift. That's what they get to do. They don't say, oh, I will work off that gift. Like, no, that would be offensive. Like, this is a gift. I'm giving it to you. I don't want you to pay me for this. They have open hands and they receive what's given to them. And that's what we do. With our open hands, our open, needy, desperate hands, we get to receive the restoration that we need. So what does this restoration do? What does receiving this gift look like? Because if it's something monumental, it's not going to be a one-time thing. It's going to have effects that go on. 
Well, what uh, Paul gets to here is new life. He creates a new people, and these new people live in new ways. So new people and new ways. We'll go at the first section here, new people, and we'll look at the second section in a second here, who live in new ways. So first, by Jesus, by removing that wedge between us and God, creates a new people. Verse 22 says, but now he's reconciled through Christ's physical body, through death, here's a section here, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, to present you holy in God's sight. Holy in God's sight, that's a pretty big deal. God is holy without blemish, free from accusation. The God who knows everything, all the blemishes, all the accusations, now you don't have those blemishes and you are free from those accusations. And you may not know this, but you, me, we all yearn for holiness. We all long for it. All of us are on a quest for holiness. And you may not say to your mate in the pub, I'm on a quest for holiness. Uh, they might wonder what in the world, how many pints did you drink before you met up with them? But all of us want that whole, pure kind of uh, life full of dignity. That's what holiness is. Black Lives Matter movement is the symbol of there is a lack of holiness in our lives. And we want to restore that. The uh, political upheavals in America, in the UK, and all the other kind of things. People are very concerned about a lack of wholeness in things that really matter, the big picture things that matter. Wholeness is holiness. Wherever there's a lack of wholeness, there's a lack of holiness. Holiness isn't like a thing where, um, you know, making sure you pray and don't eat food or whatever the thing is. Holiness is, is a, a complete, full-orbed, whole way of life. And when that is lacking, there's a lack of holiness. So really, we all want holiness. Police brutality, racism, sexism, all those kind of things, when we are confronted by those, we're rightly disturbed, and we should be, because there's a lack of holiness in those, in those uh, areas of life. When, when we come across those unholy stories, those events fracture and crack what was at least partially whole. We may not say I'm on a quest for holiness, right? But think about your career. Think about your view of your of family life. Think about how you use your money. All of that is a want to see wholeness in this world. Your passions and your desires to be worked out in such a way that you can live a full life. That's what holiness is. And this is what Jesus does, presents us as whole, as holy in God's sight. Not just internally, but before an all-holy God. Through Jesus' work, we are whole. Like, it's not like we have to work to it. It's something that we are now. It's a, a fundamental identity. We may not always feel it, but that's okay. That's who you are. Before Jesus worked in your life, you searched after it, and after Jesus worked in your life, you become it. And for all who have surrendered to Jesus, he's given you a new life. You're made new. Your flaws before through Jesus are flawless. Your accusations before through Jesus, you're freed from them. And when God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who cannot stand to be in the presence of anything less than perfect... He sees you as holy, made whole through Christ. God, God the Father isn't begrudgingly being like, oh, okay, I guess I love this guy. He's like, oh, I love this person. I get to be around this person. He's excited, just like a good father ought to be. So we have, we are made, we're new people who live in new ways. If we're new people, we can't live in the same ways we were when we were old people, like we're made something new. If, I'm, if you become a father, if you don't live like that, that's a bad thing. If you get married and you are acting like you're not married, that's a bad thing. So we're new people. How, Paul here talks a little bit about how we should live this new life that we have. Uh, and this is in verse 23. If you continue in the faith, there's a word there, if. 
you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. The test of that new identity that we have is through what we do. So what we, we, don't get, we can't get the holiness by doing things, but the test of the holiness that we have and is in the life that we live. I'll explain this in a bit. If we have been changed, then our lives will show it. If we say we have been changed, but our lives don't show it, there should be a question there, rightfully so. We're not asking people to be perfect, obviously. This isn't about being perfect, but it's like, where are we going? What's the, what's the trajectory? Are we made more into the way that Jesus calls us to live, or are we just doing our own thing? So what does this new way look like? Uh, continuing in your faith is that first thing. The first requirement here, if you're going to continue in a faith, is, is to know it. You can't continue in something that you don't know. So what does God say about it? There is no way to continue in your faith if you aren't hearing his words. If you don't know these words, then how can you continue living them out? It's impossible. The second part of that is listening. And by listening, I mean something more than just hearing. Listening is hearing and following through. I'm this chat with Colin often. Like, listen to me. I don't mean just like hear my words, but do the thing I'm telling you to do. With our whole lives. Like, do we trust Jesus enough to do that? That's, that's a radical kind of thing. Do we love him more than we love anything else, truly? That doesn't mean that we have less love for people. It actually means we have more love for other people. But it's a, it's, a, it's a radical, scary, dangerous kind of thing. It also says here that we do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. The hope is what Paul talks about earlier in, in um, chapter 1 in verse 5, where he says there's a hope stored up for you in heaven, like a future hope that we have to look forward to. Maybe the easiest way to distill all this for today is this. As new people, we're called to live in such a way that reflects this truth. The earth is not my home. We're called to work for the earth, but it is ultimately not our home. We are all immigrants. We are all pilgrims. The new heavens and earth is my home, a future home, but, but that's not yet. We're not living there yet. Now, this world, as much as we're called to work for it and bleed out for it and love it in all the ways that we are, is not ultimately our home. As long as... As I am here, I will fight for wholeness in this world. I will pray for heaven and earth to meet. But I will not assume that reality is going to happen in my daily life. If you're a Christian, so many troubles stem from the idea that you've made earth your home, but it's just not, it's not big enough and good enough for you. It won't fulfill you in the ways that you need. It won't make you whole. It will hurt you. It will hurt everybody. So let's be ready for it. And living day to day under its circumstances will damage you. We're all immigrants, we're all pilgrims, and to the extent that we get that, we won't be jailed by our comforts. We'll see our comforts as great blessings, but we won't be jailed by them. We won't be overtaken by complacency. To the extent that we get our immigrant life, we can be comfortable and hopeful in suffering. And when bad things come, which of course they will, they come to everybody, we get to say this isn't our home. Trying to make this world our home is what can guide career decisions, guides church decisions, relationship decisions, money, time, emotions, everything. But if we're a new people, we have a new way of living and a new way of looking, really. We don't look down, we look up, which is what Paul talks about is do not move from the hope held out in the gospel of being with Jesus in the future. If that is a real hope, then that actually will change how we live our day-to-day -day life in this world. The only hope we can have to be the best people in this earth is for this earth to not be our home because if, if that new heavens and earth is our home, that is what gives us the ability to actually work for this world in a way that we didn't have before. But if we're going to demand this world to come through for us in ways that it never can, we'll be frustrated and we'll give up and we we'll actually won't really work as much for it. 
Now we're becoming a new person as a one-time thing. It's like a one-time event. This walking in new ways thing is an ongoing thing. It's a walk of life. It's a thing that goes on for the whole rest of your life and gets worked out over time. Let's chat through some specifics really briefly here before we end on how this can work out in our lives. Personally, when we are individually made into a new person by Jesus, that affects our relationship with God. Now, instead of hostility towards God, we're made whole. Instead of hostility from God, we're made whole. He's, he's, we, we're made whole in his presence. He is judging us. Yes, he is judging us, but he judges us as holy, not as imperfect. So don't let accusations of you not being good enough stop you from coming to God. How many times I've talked to Christians who felt like, oh, I just didn't feel like I was good enough in order to, to pray to God or to come to church or to read the Bible. That's exactly the point to be. You're not good enough. And God doesn't expect you to be perfect. So I don't, and also, how do you expect to get out of that? You were never not good enough to come to God. And don't let that also, it's a level of uh, coming to God, but also like enjoying God. It's something else. Like there's a, a, There might be a difference between spiritual disciplines that can feel like disciplines, that can feel like a labor of reading and praying and things like that. But there's also like a level of enjoying God that's just different than a thing or a task in order to be filled out. Also with Jesus, we're freed from accusations. And this changes how we interact with him. We want to hear from this good God to us. We need to hear from this good God. He's made us new. And so what does it look like to live out that newness? The Bible isn't going to say on Monday morning, uh, Christina Wilson will do this, blah, 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 blah. It's not going to say that. As much as it would be much easier to live a formulaic life like that, it actually means we have to in- interact with a person, actually interact with God. And he will tell us what we need to do. When we hear from this God and hear of, of how he calls us to live, that will change how we interact with people Inside the church, outside the church, uh, we become more loving, we become more servant-hearted, we become more compassionate, we become more gracious. And when a group of people who have made new get together and work together and all are on the same page together, whether that's in our church or in our missional communities, that changes families, that changes streets, that changes neighborhoods, that changes so many things. As people who have been made whole, we get to join God in bringing wholeness wherever we are. We join him. He's already there. He's working. We get to join him wherever we are. In your life, in your relationships, we're called to bring wholeness. Now, sometimes that means asking people to come and see, like inviting them to something, whether it's your missional community thing or a Sunday or whatever. Oftentimes, what that means is for you to go to that person and tell them or love them or serve them in ways that they wouldn't get because they're not going to come into a church or they're not going to come into like a missional community thing. There's that inviting and going at the same time where, especially in the going, there's a servant level there of where you're leaving kind of normal rhythms of your life in order to enter into someone else's to show them what wholeness looks like and to be with them in that. Not as if they're a project, but because you love them, the way that God loves people. He doesn't see us as projects. He sees us as people. But wherever you go, whatever you're doing, you bring Jesus with you. You don't have to be Jesus. Thank God, because you're going to be a bad version of it. I guarantee you. I love you all, but that's the deal. You get to bring him with you all the time. You don't have to be God. He's already with you. And wherever in your life where you feel a disconnect, I mean, are there any parts in your life that feel discontented right now? Don't lie. Yes, of course. Yes, always. Even like before the pandemic, you know, when life was amazing. It was like the Eden version. Oh, remember that a year ago when we could hang out and 
there was no problems at all. There were problems, and too, of course, there are always going to be problems. Wherever we have that discontent, wherever that lack of wholeness is, that lack of holiness is, where something needs to be reconciled, there is always hope for Jesus to bring his wholeness. There always is hope for that. It might be difficult for you to see hope in that situation. It could be a relationship that has an overwhelming conflict. It could be an overwhelming work situation. It could be a longing that you've had that it hurts so much you can't even really think about it or talk about it with other people. You've given up hope really on hoping. Let me tell you, Jesus was wronged by us. He took on that wrong by himself and put it to death by himself. If Jesus was able to make peace between you and God, if he was able to do that, if he was able to make that relationship whole, there is always hope for his wholeness to break in whatever else we may face. Nothing is beyond his work. Just because you have a failure of imagination, don't make that be a limitation on how God can work. Now, this doesn't guarantee, of course, that all of our hopes are going to come through and that life is going to be exactly how we want it to be. It also doesn't guarantee that you will like how that wholeness comes through when you pray for it to come through. But for all those who have experienced the wholeness that comes from a reconciled relationship with God, no situation is beyond hope. It might be beyond your imagination, and that's okay. That means you trust God to work because God knows more than you do. But we cannot be moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, all of this, is really good news. And this is why something like Easter can be a really good and fun celebration. It gets to the heart of what celebrating Easter is all about. Easter is the resurrection of Jesus, the first instance of newness, of wholeness breaking into our world, the very first time that happened. And for those who Jesus has changed, we get to live in that every day. We live a resurrection life, not just one day out of the year, but every part of every day. And when Jesus died to make right our relationship to God with God, He put to death anything and everything that could hold us back. The Bible says, if Jesus has done this for you, there is nothing that can ever separate you from his love. Jesus didn't just die, he rose again. I mean, here's something crazy to think about. Can you imagine the power of the resurrection? The power that someone is dead, and then of their own power, brings themselves back to life? That's just like, ridiculous. Really, too good to be true, ridiculous, or godlike, I guess. But that kind of, that mind-blowing crazy power, if we had like a, just to like have our heads rest on that for a second, which we won't because we're going to keep moving here, just think of how crazy that is. That, um, Jesus sent that same power to live in us because that power, before it's a power, it's a person. It's the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, 11 says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, a very physical thing, not just like your spiritual life, your mortal bodies, your bodies, because of his spirit who lives in you. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead resides in us. That is insane. That's insane. I, I mean, I used the mind-blowing emoji last week. I should use it again. That's, like, that's, that's crazy. It, most of us probably think that's not real. That's just like too good to be true. That's a very dangerous thing to think about. That's crazy. The Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. The Holy Spirit continues his work in us, continues to make us whole, continues to move us along in his new walk of life. When accusations come that hold us back, when those voices come right before you go to bed and you go through all those things, oh, why did I say that? Oh, I can't believe that person thinks about me. When those things come, and they will, the Holy Spirit reminds us, no, you're free from accusations. You're holy in God's sight. This is who you are. The Holy Spirit in us 
is the power to ask for forgiveness as well when we do wrong other people. And this is what it looks like to once be estranged, then restored, and then given to a new life. We were alienated from God, estranged. Jesus restores us, and our new life means we are new people who walk in new ways. We were estranged, Jesus restores us, we have a new life. And that's what Paul's talking about here in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, and that's really the heart of the gospel. That's like this, what this whole thing is talking about, is those things. We were estranged, Jesus restores us, we have a new life. 